Well, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Today we're going to look specifically at, at verse 11, continuing to look at the godly women of the church. Now, if I preach on trusting God in the midst of pain, even unbelievers can, at some level, somewhat see the logic in that. If I preach on giving generously, even unbelievers sometimes can see the value of what they would call charitable giving. If I preach on the glories of Jesus Christ, even some unbelievers at points will think, well, that's nice that they think a lot of Jesus. If I preach on honesty and integrity in the workplace or in your business dealings, even the lost would say they would agree with this because at some level, integrity is important to them as well based on the fact that they're made in the image of God. They have a conscience that maybe they still try to listen to, although it doesn't do any good in regards to salvation in Christ. Or if I preach on loving the less than lovely or showing mercy to those in need of grace, Even the world may commend us for this. But today, there is no avoiding that the Word of God is going to give the world and its faulty systems a punch in the eye. Because today, we're preaching, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. That has been called the verse you preach when you're resigning as a pastor. Because now the world's unbelievers can't relate to this on any level. There's no common ground whatsoever. Because to them, this sort of scandalous talk is right up there with abuse and oppression and violence against women, all of which, of course, Scripture would prohibit. But because unbelievers haven't been changed, they haven't been transformed by the power of the gospel of Christ, they can't see the logic, they can't see the joy, they can't see the contentment, they can't see the gift that this particular verse is to the church. They can't have seen that packed into this one verse are some of the major keys to a contented life as a Christian woman, a life of peace, a life of focus, a life of simplicity. And so today I'd like to address the godly learning in the women of Christ's church in our series, The Godly Women of the Church. And so I'd like to give you five essentials from this verse about godly learning. This is very straightforward. We'll go to some other texts as well. It's fairly short. Five essentials from this verse about godly learning. The first one, first essential, godly learning is a directive. It is a directive. I think we often get to the qualifiers a little bit too quickly because they're the emotionally charged part of this verse. We get hung up on the quietly and the submissiveness part. But we have to stay with the basic structure of the verse. It starts, let a woman learn. Let a woman learn. Now, this admonition isn't addressed to wives specifically, although they're included. It's addressed to women in general. How do we know this? Because Paul is addressing the church as a community of believers. He's not addressing the family unit in particular. But this opening phrase here, this is the core of the sentence. The rest of the sentence grammatically is comprised of modifiers. This is the core. It's an imperative. It's a biblical command that the women of the church are to be learners. And what precisely are they commanded to learn? Well, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. And so logically, if the word is to be preached and taught, then the women of the church are to learn the word of God, the gospel, 
the scriptures taught and applied. By the way, men, as you're going along, we're not the smartest on earth. You might be going, wait a minute. This sort of sounds like it applies to me too. Keep thinking that. Absolutely. But if this is the priority, if in the gathering of the saints to worship, Paul gives this important calling, then it follows that what he's calling women to, in particular here, women, what he's calling them to is a high view of Scripture. A high view of Scripture to keep in mind that the purpose of gathering together is to learn. And I'd like to go to a different passage to remind us what our view of Scripture is to be, and it's found in Psalm 19. So go back with me to the Old Testament, not 119, but Psalm 19. Just some good, old-fashioned bibliology to recenter our priorities. It grieves me to see that the churches of our country very often name themselves Bible churches now. That used to mean the verse-by-verse expositional preaching of the Scriptures. Now it means it sounds like a good name. Or three pastors ago, we used to have a guy who did that. It grieves me, and I wish we could take that back. It's Psalm 19. We get six testimonies of the Word of God. Just some good old-fashioned bibliology here, beginning in verse 7. The first testimony is that the Bible is perfect. The Bible is perfect. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It revives the soul. This is a Hebrew word which, which refers to the whole person. Your soul is all of you. Your whole person is revived. And, and revived here, it's an interesting Hebrew word. It's the same word most often translated repent. It means to turn. It means to look the other way. And so the perfection of the word of God is so powerful that it quite literally repents the soul. It causes conviction that you're aware of and it causes changes and new values in you that you may not be aware of. This is, by the way, the danger of trying to find some quick surface devotional application every time you read the Bible for 90 seconds to say, well, I need to bring something away from this. No, it's deeper than that. We trust that the law of the Lord is perfect And simply being taught the word of God, what will it do? It will repent the soul. It will turn the soul. It will revive the soul. It will change you. This isn't uh, an emotional zap. This isn't speaking of, oh, I feel so revived all of a sudden. That's not speaking of that. This is deep, lasting, surgical change to your heart and to your mind. That's the revival. The Bible is perfect. There's a second testimony. The Bible is sure. The Bible is sure. The second half of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This word sure means it's absolute. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. And what's the proof given here? Even the simple are made wise. Now, what do we mean by made wise? We're not talking about just cramming a lot of knowledge into your head. In Jewish thought, and really it should be in Christian thought as well, Wisdom is the ability to live daily life with skill. The ability to live daily life with skill and with righteousness. What is life basically made of? It's made of a series of decisions. Wisdom says I make more right ones than wrong ones. Lack of wisdom in the fool in scripture says I'm consistently learning the hard way. I think I'll make a terrible decision and let life beat me over the head until I decide to go the other way. 
Wisdom avoids the beating over the head and just does the right thing in the first place. And what is this saying? That even the simple, even the, the, the one who maybe uh, isn't a rocket scientist, isn't scoring high on any IQ test, through the word of God can still live a wise life. I remember getting to share the word of God with a, with a man whose IQ was about the same as his height. And he began reading the Bible and he said, I just love the book of Palms. And I said, why do you love the book of Palms? I couldn't stand to correct him. And he said, because it tells me how to live. It makes wise the simple. There's a third testimony. The Bible is right. It is right. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It means it lays out a straight pathway. It lays out the, the way to righteousness. We read this earlier, but Psalm 119, 105 tells us that the word of God is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If you hear somebody preaching the word and you walk away more confused than when you came in, they're not preaching correctly. The point is not to shed more darkness in your life to make you think the guy speaking is really smart. The point is to give you light so that you can say, oh, I, I, I can see that. That makes sense to me. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, blessed or happy are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Why? Because God blesses faithfulness and obedience that a life lived within the boundaries which scripture provides gives genuine joy and peace. It's right. There's a fourth testimony. The Bible is pure. The Bible is pure. The second half of verse eight, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The scriptures are pure. They have nothing false. There's nothing misleading. There's nothing to cause spiritual confusion. I'm hoping in the fall, maybe early in the spring on Sunday nights, I would like to preach from the book of Song of Solomon. But did you know that there's a, a huge contingent of American evangelicalism that says that, that people shouldn't read Song of Solomon because it is about the nature of marital love? I have a hard time believing that there's a part of the Bible I should avoid. I have a hard time believing that there's a part of the Bible, according to one parent who told me it would cause me to sin or cause my child to sin. No part of the word of God ever causes sin. It prevents sin. Why is it pure? Because the scriptures give pure clarity. This is why the Christian routinely doesn't worry about death. We don't worry about death. She can entrust the greatest of life's troubles to the Lord. She can smile at the future. As Proverbs 31 says of a godly woman, the Christian who knows her Bible can answer with ease the greatest of life's questions. You realize that there isn't a single question that a, that a lost person can present to you that you can't just simply open your Bible and answer? That's phenomenal. It is pure. There's a, sixth, a fifth testimony, rather. The Bible is clean. It's clean, verse Nine, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now here, the, the fear of the Lord, that is, that is symbolic of the word of God. How do we know this? Because this is the context here. I find it interesting that the Bible is called the fear of the Lord. I think that's a great reminder for us. But what does it mean that it's clean? It's untouched by evil. It, it uncovers and it exposes evil, but itself is unsullied. It's never out of date. It never needs to be revamped, never needs to be reworked. I don't need to make the Bible relevant to you. 
The Bible is relevant in and of itself. It doesn't need my help. It's timeless. It's completely and perfectly holy and unpolluted. It is clean. One more testimony, the Bible is true. The Bible is true. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. End of verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 2 Timothy 3.7 says that unbelievers are, quote, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Now, why is this? Well, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person, this means the unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But for the Christian, the person with the Holy Spirit indwelling him or her, the, the, the Spirit gives witness to our souls that what we're reading is true. It's lovely. It is the very mind of God himself. There is a whole area of apologetics, of Christian defense, that talks about defending the Bible. Could I say this? I, I understand where they're coming from, but the Bible doesn't need our help defending itself. And I'll tell you why. Because every person in history who's ever read the Bible and gets saved knows that it's true. I don't need archaeology. I don't need external evidence. I don't need logic even to tell me that the Bible is true. The Spirit of God within me testifies that it is true. And the testimony of countless millions over the past 3,500 years would say the same thing. The very next verse of 1 Corinthians 2, in fact, verse 15, says that we have the mind of Christ. Why is that? It's very simple. We hold in our hands the word of Christ, which is taught to us by the Spirit of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Now, those are six testimonies. If you want some bigger words, those six testimonies lay out a clear case for the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, and, of course, the authority of Scripture. Because if the Bible is inerrant, if it's infallible and it's inspired, then it follows that it must be authoritative. I'll put it this way. There are lots of books that can change your thinking. Only the Bible can change your nature. Only the Bible can change who you are. It's the only book which can completely transform you from the inside and has a splash and a ripple effect into every area of your life. And what I love is it's not even in ways that you're fully aware of. As a preacher, I am called to apply the word of God to your lives. You know what I find more often than not is somebody comes and and says to me, you know, thanks for those applications. Didn't really listen to that part. Here's what really hit me. Why? Because the spirit of God takes the word of God and says, thank you, Steve. Move over. I'm going to do this work. And it changes you in ways we could never have imagined. And so now it makes perfect sense that Paul gives the imperative, the command, let a woman learn. Godly learning is a directive. It's a command. There's a second essential, and you can go back to 1 Timothy 2 if you wish, although we're just doing a couple more words. The second essential is godly learning is a demeanor. It is a demeanor. Godly learning is a directive. Godly learning is a demeanor. Not only is a woman to learn, Let a woman learn quietly. This is sometimes translated in silence, which is a legitimate translation. But I think quietly is a little bit better because this is more about the attitude of the heart. This isn't an admonition to to literally not speak when you're at church. 
I mean, it's not like, ladies, you drive into the parking lot and you're still saying something to your husband and the lightning strikes because you were disobeying. It's not talking about that. It can literally mean to say nothing, but it has a broader connotation of the heart attitude of quietness, of being still, of being at rest. It's an attitude of receiving. It's an attitude of being focused on nothing else except hearing. Let me put it this way. It's a mindset of quiet receptivity. That I'm ready to learn. I come with no defenses, no challenging spirit, but I come with humility, expecting God to speak to my mind, expecting God to speak to my heart. Listen, ladies, think about all the secondary agendas that you may have in coming to the gathered assembly, to church, and many, if not all of them, are good. Serving in various capacities, we're thankful for that. Touching base with your friends and fellowshipping with your your brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, the spiritual lift that we receive just by being together with God's people. These are all good things. But this quietness, this silence speaks volumes about what is most important about our gathering. What is most important is that we learn. Because in reality, how can anyone learn except in quietness? You will notice we are not having a discussion. The reason is the minute the discussion starts, the learning stops. Silence is the prerequisite to learning. And this means that your primary focus, your cause, your determination in the gathered body is to be resolved to learn, to grow, even if this means being edified by truths that you have heard before. What true Christian gets tired of the cross? What believer yawns at the thought of Christ's return? What follower of Christ has truly mastered his commands and has no need of constant reminder? No, instead, silence, quietness in the attitude of the heart, that prepares you to learn. It's absolutely essential to learning and growing in the Lord. Now, obviously, this goes for men as well in that when it's time to listen, it's time to listen. It gives you time to think and to wrestle with truth to let it sink in and to become part of you. This is so important because I guarantee you, if you agree with every word that comes out of my mouth, the second it comes out of my mouth, I don't think you're thinking or I'm not hitting you where you live because the joke we often have is that that we should, that we take the offering um, before the sermon so because you'd be less likely to give afterwards. Why is this so important? Because hearing the word of God, there is a wrestling in your mind. Wait a minute. He just shot one of my idols between the eyes. I'm not sure I like that. Because preaching isn't simply about receiving content which you intellectually chew on later. And frankly, in our busy culture, that doesn't happen as much as it should. Would that we could return to the days of the Puritans where families went home from church and they discussed the sermon and they discussed the application to their lives. In our culture, we're already on the phone by the time we're out the parking lot. No, preaching is also something that happens in this moment. The Spirit of God at work in your mind and in your heart, and this is particularly true when you're hearing the preached word live and in person because there's an accountability. If I'm looking at you in the camera, all you have to do is hit a button and I'm gone. But right here, I'm looking at you in the eyes and you know that I'm going to see you when you get up. I will see you when you roll your eyes. I will see you when you go like that. I will see you. And there's an accountability. 
we get a clear explanation of the demeanor of godly learning in James chapter 1. Go ahead and turn over there with me. I just want to make a couple of observations. James 1, a little bit over to your right. This is familiar to you, probably even to the point of almost being a slogan. James 1, verse 22. I've seen this verse quoted in completely secular contexts, which boggles my mind because I don't, they don't have a clue what they're actually talking about. So it's become slogan-like. James 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I have a question for you. Why does James say to be doers of the word and not just hearers? Why doesn't he say be doers and not just readers? It's very simple. Because when James wrote, no one owned a personal copy of the scriptures. Almost nobody did. We're still speaking about the Old Testament scriptures here since the New Testament was largely unwritten still when James was written. Where did you hear the scriptures then? You heard the scriptures as the church gathered and the shepherds read the word of God and explained the word of God and applied the word of God. So that helps us understand. It sets the previous verses into a more precise context. So when you're hearing the preached word of God, what is your demeanor to be? Verse 19, going back a little ways. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, there's to be a silence because you're listening. There's to be a slowness uh, to speak because you're considering. And at all costs, there's to be an avoidance of a a knee-jerk reaction of anger. Why is this? Because none of those responses produce righteousness. None of those responses produce godly character. In fact, the clear indication here is that confession of sin is what has to precede hearing the preached word. Verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, that's confession, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word is to be received with meekness, with humility. Why? Because it's implanted into your heart that's able to save your soul. This isn't speaking of salvation from sin For the first time, although the word of God does that as well. This is speaking more of saving your whole life. Making your life worth living. Or if I could put it this way, making your life worth imitating. And as you read the rest of the book of James, that's what it's about. It is about living in wisdom. That's the demeanor of godly learning. I I will never forget hearing a lecture from one of the most brilliant men that I've ever sat under, Dr. Bill Barrick, 19 ancient languages that he would learn like over a weekend here and there. Just a brilliant man. I also happened to know at the time that he was an elder in a church with a pastor that had significantly less, A, education, and B, brain power than he did. But I remember hearing Dr. Barrick say, I'm so thankful for my pastor and all that I learn every week sitting under his authority. That boggled my mind. That was a demeanor of listening. Godly learning is a directive. Godly learning is a demeanor. Here's a third essential. And again, we can return to 1 Timothy 2. The third essential, godly learning is a devotion. It is a devotion. 
First Timothy 2.11, again, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, we just stepped on a bit of a landmine here because the obvious question is submissive to whom? Well, we have to start, we have to start uh, getting rid of the, the options that don't work. It can't be submissive to all men in general. That is a misnomer put out by unbelievers. Well, Christians believe that women should submit to men. No, we don't. The Bible never says that. Scripture never commands that all women submit to men. That is promulgated by unbelievers who don't know the Bible. So that can't be it. Is it speaking of submission to husbands? It could be. There's a great cross-reference. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 14 Beginning of verse 33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Okay, I got to stop right there. Everybody says, well, 1 Timothy 2 is a cultural thing to Ephesus. Uh, Paul says here, as in all the churches of the saints. So we get rid of that argument. But we continue, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Here it is. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. In other words, it's shameful for a woman to blurt out questions before she's spoken privately to her husband. Which, by the way, husband is great for you. Because if your wife asks you a question to which you don't know the answer, what's your job? Go find it. It's okay to say, I don't know, but follow it up with, I'll get back to you. That's a great exercise for you. But here in 1 Timothy 2, the main concern is not the marriage relationship. So is this speaking of submission to husbands? It's kind of a maybe. Or maybe is this speaking of submission to the God-ordained leadership structure of the church, the leaders of the church? I think we're getting closer I mean, after all, the context is the gathering of the local church, and that's always inextricably connected with her leaders. A gathering of Christians without qualified or recognized leadership, that's not really a church in the strictest sense. It's just a bunch of Christians who happen to be eating together or something. But that's not even really the main idea here. Our best bet and the closest obvious application is that this is an attitude of submissiveness, listen carefully, to the act of learning itself. That's what you're being submissive to, the act of learning, to learn with all submissiveness that yes, I'm here to be taught, I'm here to grow, I'm here to change. Yes, even to be challenged and even to be rebuked for my own good, for the maturity and Christlikeness that this will form in me. Isn't it ironic that we pay surgeons thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to stick sharp objects into our bodies. And we, we thank them. I have this scar that's you know 19 inches long. Thank you, Doc. I appreciate that. Isn't preaching the same? You walk out and you put your money so generously in that box back there to help pay for the guys that, that step on your toes every week. And yet, what does it accomplish? It makes us more like Christ. I'm here to see Colossians 1.28 worked out in your heart and your mind and in my heart and my mind. And that's why you should be here as well. That him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Oh, we can say, oh, I love going to a Bible church because I get taught. How about this? I love going to a Bible church because I get warned. 
I get warned. And that's an act of love. If you're not gathered with the church to learn, then your motives for being with the church might be suspect. And yes, there's many wonderful parts of our worship, including our fellowship. But if learning isn't at the top of that priority, then then the foundation is eroded. And you might say that sounds a lot like it should apply to men and women in the setting of instruction. And that's true, it does. When the instruction of God's word is happening, no one gets to yell out, now hang on just a minute here. We don't do that. But the context here is specific to women. And so we're helped by understanding that that the attitude of quietness and submission is joined at the hip with verse 12. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That helps us understand the attitude of quietness and submission as opposed to one of trying to usurp or control or lead men. We'll deal with that next week. I read a poll this week that showed that in the evangelical Protestant church, which nobody even knows what that means anymore, hardly in America, but we'll put it this way, in the church that's not Catholic, the average sermon length is between 20 and 28 minutes. That's appalling. You can't become like Christ in 20 minutes a week. That's like joining a gym and being there 20 minutes a month. That doesn't do you any good. It's so important to help the church gain an appetite for preaching that has depth and content, and that takes practice, that takes time. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of preachers. Take care how you build on the foundation of Christ. We build carefully upon Christ as revealed in his word. It's also important to be continually reminded of key truths. I mean, listen, if, if we just taught everything once and left it at that, we'd run out of time eventually or we'd run out of material. I love the example of Peter. Second Peter 1, Peter gives the qualities of, mat- of a maturing believer in Christ. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. And then he says in Second Peter 1, 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. You know what Peter just said? He said, as long as I have breath in my lungs, I will keep preaching the same truths to you over and over and over again. And what's his goal? To stir you up. To stir up that which is in you. Stir up the truth. And it's important to have a continual appetite for the word. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. You know, the church at Ephesus warns me, and it should warn us. The warning of Christ in Revelation 2 to the church at Ephesus you have lost your first what? Love. If you analyze the church at Ephesus, you know what I think it would have been called if you drove in Ephesus and you saw the sign outside that would have been called Ephesus Bible Church. Because the danger in a Bible church is that you become so satiated with the word of God that you quit being hungry. 
And all of a sudden, church becomes a little more optional, a little more less than enthusiasm uh, that, that you have toward it. We're to long for pure spiritual milk. All of you who have been here for years and years, we can all take a page from the, those of you who have been here for three months. And I can tell the difference because those of you who have been here for three months, you're, you're walking out massaging your hands because you've been trying to, to keep up. You have cuts on your fingers from turning in your Bible. And this is like a new thing for you. Oh, that we all have that hunger. And here's why. Follow this logic. The more you understand the word of God, the more then you see how truly glorious God is. And the more you behold his glory, the more you're transformed into his image. That's the progression. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And how does that happen? It is through the word of God. It is through learning our God. And you might, you might say, I'm not, I'm not an extraordinary person. I may be even not as intelligent as people as I, as I know. And, and I'd sure like to do something great for God, but that's not me. Because I tell you this by way of encouragement, merely learning of him and knowing him better and better through the quietness of your heart of being instructed week after week after week, this is an act of devotion and it is an act of greatness. Why is it an act of devotion? Because you're doing as Christ commanded and that alone is a great work for God. It is a great work. Don't worry about figuring out how to use what you learn. The Lord will place those opportunities in your path. Trust me. This quiet learning is so, so pleasing to him. It is a devotion. Godly learning is a directive. Godly learning is a demeanor. Godly learning is a devotion. There's a fourth essential. Godly learning is a defense. Godly learning is a defense. It is not possible, if I could use a double negative, it is not possible to not learn. You will learn something. Whatever you spend your time and energy on, that will be what teaches you. You have teachers all around you, and you make the choice of which teachers you place in front of you. And an intentionality about learning the word of God acts as a defense against another type of learning. Turn over one page to 1 Timothy 5. I'm going to give you an example here. Paul has just urged that the local church not view a younger widow as someone who should be trying to devote herself solely to service in the church. That a commitment made in haste. This is a young widow who says, I've decided that the rest of my life is devoted solely to serving in the church to the Lord. I'll never marry again. Paul says that commitment could lead to regret when she desires to alter that commitment to remarry. And he gives another reason, something for the younger women to be wary of. 1 Timothy 5, 13. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Now what are they learning? They're learning, he says, to be idlers. It's a word that means lazy, good for nothing. They're just filling time with nonsense. They learn to be gossips. Now, it's interesting. This Greek word is translated in English as a noun, gossips. But in Greek, it's an adjective. They learn to be gossipy. That's their personality. That's who they are. They're filled with silly talk, with destructive talk. Talking is a form of entertainment, not just a relational tool. 
And they're learning to be busybodies. Busybodies is one of those words that's kind of self-defining, isn't it? It means to be overly inquiring, to be meddlesome. We would say sticking their nose in everyone's business. It would be something like this. I saw your car wasn't in your driveway when I just happened to drive by your house for no particular reason. Where'd you go? Did you see anyone? Are you okay? What's going on? Is there anything I should know? Do you usually go out? Did you go to Walmart? Normally I see you at Walmart. Are you protesting Walmart? Is there something I should know? How come you didn't go over here? Where did you go? Your right answer is, I went to Nunya. (laughs) If you don't know that joke, it's Nunya business. And you say, oh, isn't that, isn't that funny what happened in the ancient world? That happens at Grace Bible Church. Every one of us have 168 hours of the week. Don't spend them with nonsense. This is the woman who's more enamored with hearing herself speak. How do you fight back against that? Be enamored with hearing God speak. Instead of this, you busy yourself with the learning of God's word. Learn Christ, not idleness, not being gossipy, not being a busybody. Amazingly, you will make it through your life if you don't know everything about everyone. You will make it. Godly learning is a defense. Let's do one more. A fifth essential, godly learning is a duty. It is a duty. The church of Jesus Christ needs godly women to serve as examples and as teachers to the next generations and to one another. This is the entire pattern laid out in Titus chapter 2, which we preached through a couple weeks ago in our Growing in Grace Women's Luncheon, that the woman of God is aiming to instruct the next generation. And this includes, by the way, aiming to live a life worth imitating. That's the easiest way to teach. The easiest way to pass on what you know is to do what Paul did, telling the various churches to imitate him, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me. Dr. Dorothy Patterson is one of the premier writers in the field of Christian womanhood, and she writes, quote, the desire for knowledge is set within boundaries that will make a woman's learning and the outworking of that learning most meaningful to her, most edifying in the kingdom, and above all, most God-glorifying in the overall schema of the Father's plan. And I have to say this, generally speaking, there is a void in the church of Jesus Christ of women who can properly exegete a passage of Scripture and explain it to other women and children. The church needs you. I mean, our own women's ministry here, trying to find a woman speaker who can exegete the Word of God, it's like pulling teeth. At Grace Bible Church, we've done our best, ladies, and we hope to do better to provide you with resources and opportunities to be learners because it is a duty and, and, and the other women and the girls, they need you. Look, I can preach till I'm blue in the face to a 13-year-old girl telling her that she ought to be a godly wife and a mother. But if she simply sees you doing it and you explaining here's how, oh, that carries so much weight. If you'd allow me the privilege to challenge you to a lifestyle of learning, I'd like to give you some thoughts and I'll put them in terms of stops and starts. We'll go back and forth. I'll give you three of each. Three stops and three starts and we'll ping pong back and forth. Here's the first start. Start reading more. Start reading more. The growing Christian is a reading Christian. That has been the case throughout church history. And someone would say, well, I'm not really a reader. 
Can I rephrase that? I have chosen to not really be a reader. It is like exercising anything else. It is something you build into. Start reading more. I would challenge you to make this a priority even if you and your husband have to take some time to simply read together. Either you're reading something different or or literally read to each other. And at the base of this, and I, I, I hate to say this, but the fact is, is that not every Christian reads their Bibles. So at the base, read your Bible. Not reading your Bible is like being married, but telling your spouse, I don't want to hear from you directly. All I want is someone else to give me a synopsis of what you would have said had I been listening. That's what not reading your Bible says. And besides your Bible, read what others teach from the Bible. This is why we have the Grace Equipped Bookstore. And I know we all know about Amazon, but the bookstore is out there for you to walk by and go, yes, I need to read. It is a visible and immediately accessible reminder to read. Second, stop reading purely devotionally. Stop reading purely devotionally. This is the bane of the American evangelical movement. First, stop reading the Bible purely devotionally, meaning reading small portions in in order to try to get some sort of feeling, some instant rush of emotion, a, a tear to the eye, an encouragement in the next 90 seconds. Now, the Word of God most definitely will do that. It will encourage you. It will bring a tear to the eye. But the devotional view of Scripture is so wrong because it tends to ignore the whole of the Word of God and have us gravitate toward favorite passages. We don't ever say with a tear in our eye, I just really emotionally need to read the end of Exodus 20 that reminds everyone to wear underwear when they go to church. That's just really edifying to me. Now, we need the whole Word of God. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that means don't read devotionally looking for a, a little shot of something. And we tend to just go to a few favorite passages for that. But beyond the Bible, Christian publishers love to print gushy and oftentimes shallow and even inaccurate, sloppy devotional materials. I preached a whole sermon on one a couple of weeks ago. Whether it's daily devotionals or make-me-feel-good books, there are some good daily devotionals. Then there's the other 99% of them. Why are these so hot in the, in the Christian publishing market? Because women are their best customers and they buy gushy devotionals by the truckloads. But how long-term useful are they really in most cases? Go to any Goodwill store and look in the book section. You know what you see? Rows and rows of devotionals because they didn't stand the test of time. So stop reading purely devotionally. Third, start reading outside your comfort zone. Start reading outside your comfort zone. If reading church history sounds like torture, try it anyway because what you're going to find is that you're reading about your brothers and sisters and there's a connection to your past discipline yourself to stay at it these men and women who serve christ in the years past will become your friends and your teachers our friend here dr steve lawson was in a time of grave difficulty in his own church many years ago when even his own leaders were turning on him and he realized the only friends he had at that moment were in his study and he gathered all of his christian biographies and church history volumes and literally rearranged his office so that they were surrounding him and he said they became my friends They were my encouragers. If you're reading theology 
and you say, I'm going to read this theology book, and you're on page four going, I'm never going to make it. (laughs) Discipline yourself to stay at it. Practice reading with discernment. Don't just go for the so-called good authors, meaning the ones we generally agree with. Read some you don't know. Read carefully. Compare it to sound theology. One pastor was asked, like many pastors are, who's a good author I can read? And he answered from Romans 3, there is no one who does good, no, not one. (laughs) Fourth, stop cherry-picking feel-good sermons to listen to. Stop cherry-picking feel-good sermons to listen to. Instead, pick a series and determine to listen to all of it. Get the whole counsel of God. Some of you newer members here, I've been so astounded. You tell me in, in, in Grace Connect class, yeah, I just listened to all your sermons in Isaiah. There's like 75 of them. I listened to all of Revelation. I listened to all of Mark. Our Steadfast in the Faith website, there are hundreds and hundreds of messages that we've done here over the past eight and a half years. Here's a challenge for you. Next time I start a preaching series, commit to be here for every message. Coincidentally, tonight, on Sunday evening, we are starting a new series in Deuteronomy. I want to encourage you to be here for every one of them. Fifth, start taking advantage of every learning opportunity. Start taking advantage of every learning opportunity. If you've been at Grace for six, seven, eight years, ten years, and you show up in my office asking a basic question like, you know, what as a husband am I supposed to do with my wife? I I just want to say, I don't know what else to tell you because we've been preaching this for years and years. So take advantage of every learning opportunity. Fundamentals of the faith. In a small group and later we'll have a Sunday school again when we have space. That takes four months or so. Bible Training Institute takes two and a half years. You'll learn theology, the whole Bible, how to put together a basic, well-studied Bible lesson. How about this one, Sunday evening church? I want to encourage you to commit to coming on Sunday evenings for one year straight. And I will take anyone out to dinner who says, that didn't make a single difference in my life. I already know that's a bet I'm going to win because it will make a difference. If you're the head of your home, husbands and fathers, heads of homes, get your wife and family here Help them be spiritually successful. Don't be part of their laziness. Be part of their discipline to get them here. Let me give you one more. Stop thinking that teaching is only for others. Stop thinking that teaching, meaning you doing the teaching, is only for others. I have a challenge for you. I want to encourage you to take five verses in the New Testament and begin making observations, reading them, pondering them, taking notes, reading others who have written about those five verses and do this every day for a month and see if after a month you don't have terrific truths to share with your family or to share with some other ladies. If some of you ladies get together informally, and I know you do, I challenge you to to elevate your, your speaking, elevate your content of your conversation and have one or two of you bring a well-studied short Bible lesson and listen to one another And then the next time, have someone else do it, and so on. If you're volunteering for children's ministry, yes, we have wonderful materials, but don't limit your study to a a panicked Saturday night cram session. Read the relevant scriptures. Study them yourself. Enrich your own understanding, which will in turn enrich what you share with the children. One of the greatest teaching experiences of my life was trying to explain Genesis 1 
to a group of first and second graders over a period of months. That was a tremendous experience. And you know what I found out? I learned as much as they did. Because if you can explain the Bible to a second grader, you've learned as well. Listen, ladies, the church of Jesus Christ desperately needs you to be a well-informed learner. Because the church in which the ladies are learning is a church that, that is healthy and is strong. And we're thankful for that. If you would, if you would uh, indulge me for just a minute, I'd like to have the Lord Jesus himself form our conclusion. Just for a second, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And in Luke 10, we have here the encapsulated form of the quiet learning of a woman of God. Luke chapter 10. Some of you are smiling. You already know what we're going to say. Verse 38. Luke 10, 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus isn't expressing anger. He's not even really giving a strong rebuke for Martha. He's so tender, Martha, Martha. And he says, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. What is the one thing? What is the good portion? Verse 39, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And to this day, what is Mary doing for us? She's teaching us, isn't she? By her example, 2,000 years later, the example of Mary with the quiet demeanor of a learner is our great inspiration to where our hearts are to be when we gather with God's people. Can I put it this way? That when the word of God is opened, then our mouths are closed. For when God is speaking through his word, it's time to be a learner. Now, ladies, I hope you won't take this and just say later, hmm, I should think about this. Now, I'm praying that even now in the quiet of your heart, that there is a determination, there's a growing resolve right now that you're going to devote yourself to knowing Christ more, to say, I will read more, or I will listen more, or I will study more. And I'm challenging you before this day is done, before you lay your head on your pillow tonight, that you have a plan. And you may be saying, I already listened to 100 sermons a week. Great, make it 105. How much more of God can you take? (laughs) All we can. I have confidence that you're going to take this to heart. You have a history of doing that here. I know you'll continue growing, but I have one other group of ladies to speak to. You who maybe enjoy socializing in the church, you who enjoy the feeling of love with some other women in the church, maybe you have a sense of belonging or even feeling though God is closer to you because you've been here or maybe been in another church that you just have that sense that God is closer to you. But I would urge you to beware that you don't mistake those nice feelings for actually being in Christ, for actually being born again. You cannot 
ease your way into the kingdom of God any more than you can ease your way off a high dive. You gotta jump. You must trust that you will land safely in the arms of your Savior, Jesus. You must repent. You must tell the Lord how sorry you are for playing Christian, for playing church, for enjoying the benefits of the church without enjoying the Christ of the church. Did you know that Hebrews chapter 6 warns that if you enjoy the church long enough without repenting, there no longer remains forgiveness for sins for you. That there is a day when God says enough, you will not be offered salvation again. But if you repent, you know how you'll know that you're in Christ? You know how you'll know that your conversion is real? Because now you will, as they say, yearn to learn. You'll long to be like the newborn, singularly focused on the milk that she so desperately needs. You won't be able to get enough. You'll be here Sunday morning, Sunday evening. You'll be sending me emails about when are we starting a Wednesday evening service. You'll be reading your Bible in chunks and leaving a trail of fire in your heart as the word burns itself into your soul. And you too then can be a glorious, quiet learner. You know what I love about being a learner? I know I mention this a lot. I don't care. Second Peter 1 says, I get to remind you. <laughs> Psalm 16 says that at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. What does this mean? It means that you will continue to learn of God for all eternity. And because he's eternal, you will not have made any progress. We may as well start now. Let's pray. Our Father... We pray not only for our our precious dear ladies in the church, but for all of us to be disciples, learners. There's so much richness in your word. And there's so many distractions in this life, so many reasons, so many excuses we can find to not be with the people of God. To say, I need to relax, or I need to prepare for the week or I need to do this or I need to do that and certainly we understand sometimes debilitating illness prevents us but that's to our grief but Lord we need your word we need every opportunity we need to hear the gospel week after week after week we need to hear the name of Jesus named week after week after week we need to know that the Holy Spirit is working through his word week after week after week we need to be with one another we need to have the accountability of looking to the word together and hearing the pages of our Bibles turn week after week after week we need the word of God to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path for it alone will light our way all the way home to heaven. May we be learners, godly learners, in quietness, humility, and submission. All for the glory of Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.